I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. What we thought we'd do is, um, rather than doing a proper reading uh, where it goes in order and is understandable, um, instead we're going to simply try and talk about the things that interest us um, about fiction, I think, is the idea. And um, So while I think we will be reading um, momentarily from our books, uh, the initial um, conversation will be a little bit more freeform than that, so um, we will see what happens. Um, and the way that we're going to start, basically we're going to talk about things that um, we normally talk about in private, and um, instead we will talk about them in public. Um, but I, I, not, not everything. Um, but one of the things that I actually want to start with, which um, I haven't told Antonio about, is uh, there's a quote that has always interested me in an interview she gave um, recently to The Guardian, um, where she was talking about herself, and she says that um, the most important thing in my life is making things. Much as I love my husband and my children, I love them only because I am the person who makes these things. I, who I am, is the person that has the project of making a thing. Um, and because that person does that all the time, that person is able to love all these people. And That doesn't sound as though the recording went quite right. <laughs> um. Well, I rather liked it because actually I thought it why I wanted it. The model my head is in <laughs> um, about about writers and their relationship to the, the world when they're writing and when they're not writing. Well, exactly, because um, one of the things I think that we often talk about is um, the the morality of being a writer and the morality not really so much towards the people you actually know in the real world, um, but the morality of how you treat the people you don't know in the unreal world of your fiction. Um, and I suppose what I'm interested in is the fact that you relate the two together. Um, well, that's because a lot of people put the people in the real world into their fiction. Um, I, I know a writer whose child reproached her I think 30 years later, for having written about something it did in its childhood, which she found inoffensive, and it found very offensive. <laughs> and this, this kind of thing is very hard. But, and so I think there are two problems which that long quotation muddles up together, about um, if you're a writer, essentially you're solitary. You can be all sorts of artists and not be as solitary as a writer, because a writer just needs a very long time 
sitting by him or herself with paper or a computer. And this is inevitably taken from other people. And I... And then you come across the phrase, quality time. Do you give quality time <laughs> to those people from whom you are taking the time? Um, and you have to realise, I don't know about your upbringing, you will now tell me, but I was brought up by the Quakers, and the Quakers believed you should always put other people first, and you should do everything to make other people all right before you paid any attention to yourself or your own projects whatsoever. And at some very deep level, I still believe that. So I believe that all my writing time is stolen from some more virtuous activity that I should be doing. I think you don't do that. I had a different upbringing. It's <laughs> well, now you must say what your upbringing um, taught you to think. I don't know what it taught me to think. I think that in relation to... In relation to fiction, I think that certainly it taught me that um, I was most happy when I was imagining somewhere else. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's true that I think one of the things that is definitely difficult in a writer's life is negotiating how far you um, give time to things outside, outside that kind of tiny circle of your, of your studio, as it were. Um, and that certainly the world viewed from the studio is often seems more not interesting, but uh, more manageable than the world um, that's outside the studio. Um, but I think maybe I was, I was a spoiled child, <laughs> so I was, I, was, I was told that it was okay to um, only care about myself. Um, maybe this comes out in my fiction. <laughs> um, when you understand people like that, I mean, you, under <laughs> you understand people who care about themselves. You do it very elegantly, but one would then argue that a writer who understands people who only care about themselves knows something else as well. Yeah? That seems too clever. <laughs> no, no, it's not. But writing is a way of understanding yeah. which stops you being selfish. And uh, I think it On the one hand, and on the other hand, it makes you selfish. Yeah, and there's also, I think, a paradox that um, writing is incredibly solitary, and yet it's a w only, I think, often solitary people seem to... Um, be taken with the desire to understand people to that extent, um, that there seems to be some kind of... I don't know what the emotion is, but there's an emotion behind it, um, possibly anxiety in some ways. Yes, I had a boyfriend at Cambridge whom I found myself quoting a lot in the last few weeks who said to me, and this was a terrible shock, he said, writing is an exercise of power. So I said, what? because we were studying under Dr. Leavis, who believed that writing was a way of understanding the moral structure of the world. I said, what? And he said, well, you, you just put the world into the shape in which you enjoy describing it, in which you like describing it. I don't think he said you, because he didn't think I was a writer. I was just another fellow student. But they describe the world in a shape they wish to make and that they can bear. Um, and there's a wonderful example in Proust of Madame de Villeparisi, who writes her memoirs. And the memoirs outlast all the people in the memoirs. And although they're largely, as I remember, untruthful memoirs, they become the truth that the people in the world <laughs> read about those people. And this is, this is terrible. Uh, this is very frightening. I mean, the Quakers might be right. It's, I mean, to it, one of the things I think that is really interesting in fiction is how you give freedom to a character. Um, yeah. And um, 
the the the, the slightly um, imperfect solution that so far I come up with is to use varieties of, of a speaking I that is um, not literally me, but is kind of identifiable as a version of, of, of the literal person who's writing the book. Um, and I think the reason for that is that then I sort of feel that if you've kind of put an I in the book, then it's actually easier for a character to, um, to escape. Um, and that when I called this book The Escape, there was a way in which uh-huh. I wanted it to be that this character somehow would get away from the narrator. Um, and I wonder how you... Because I think that the... Often the idea is that the more... Uh, it comes back to the kind of old um, separation between showing and telling that people always used to say, you know, it's much better to show rather than tell. And I've always been a little bit sceptical of this because I think sometimes if you are more exhibitionist in a way, then it gives actually a character more freedom and that you're more subtly tyrannical um, by uh, removing yourself or pretending to remove yourself from, from, a, from, from the novel. Um, I very much sense? like your eye. I like the eye in politics and I like the eye in the escape and I like the way this narrator doesn't exist and then suddenly puts himself into the picture and describes how he feels, really, in a way, about what the people were feeling, which, as you say, has precisely the effect of removing the people so that they become independent. Um, This is, in fact, why I like third-person narrators, oddly for the same reason. I think the George Eliot narrator doesn't identify with any of the characters, and so all the characters have freedom. Who was it? Um, There's somebody very famous who said... It was Somerset Maugham. When I was a a schoolgirl, I read a book by him which said that the first-person narrator is always better because it's more truthful, because nobody can know everything. But this is ridiculous. In the world of a novel, the novelist knows... Everything. Everything. So the novelist may as well have his or her own voice. I don't say I, but I do have a narrative voice which is quite separate from all the characters. And in some curious way, I think that has the same effect as your I. Yeah, I mean, because I'm thinking the great kind of exponent of um, the third person was Henry James. And what I've always been been interested by is that in his prefaces, he constantly says, this is all mediated through a kind of a, a focal point of consciousness. And yet, in the first novel, when he talks about this in The Portrait of a Lady, um, there is literally an I in the actual book that is obviously James, um, which he conveniently forgets. And I've always found that interesting as a kind of miniature allegory of how it's... Within the third person, there is always a kind of first person struggling to get out, um, like the fat thin person in the fat person. Um, Well, there's the... I think this, yes, this is true, but it's not an autobiographical first person struggling to get out. It's a writing first person struggling to get out. I wrote a novel called Still Life once, which which had as its project, God help me, um, not to use any metaphors. Um, I I, I was obsessed with William Carlos Williams, who wrote a poem saying, no ideas but in things. And I thought I would write a thing novel. And it wouldn't work, and it wouldn't work, and it wouldn't work, because I cannot think without metaphors, and I learnt an enormous amount with this project. In the end, it broke down, and the I began to speak and said, I am very sorry I tried to write this novel (laughs) in this way, and I find I can't. And that's actually the most autobiographical thing I think I've ever written. Yeah. Um, that chapter where the, the thing breaks down. 
I mean, this is remind this because uh, one of the people we often argue about is Flaubert, and um, and I'm thinking two things. And partly remember, there's a, a moment in Matthew Arnold, who I, I don't think really liked Madame Bovary as a novel, um, where one of his main criticisms is where he kind of says that um, Flaubert mercilessly pursues his heroine, um, that he kind of that, and it's it's this idea that the novelist, in relation to his creation in some way needs to let them go, that, they, that there's a certain amount of cruelty in the way that Flaubert writes about Madame Bovary, um, which obviously to Arnold in some ways is an ethical transgression. Um, and then the other thing, though, that I'm kind of thinking is that weirdly in, in, in Madame Bovary it actually starts with an eye. It starts with the schoolmate of Charles Bovary. Yes, uh, one of your sort of eye, who is who very is peripheral. Yes. No one has any... There's no kind of biographical information about this eye, and then he disappears... Um, and he never returns. And he describes returns. this hat of Charles Bovary yeah. at immense length. Which is basically a miniature symbol for the whole kind of... For the whole kind of book. Yeah. And, and he never comes back and it never comes back. And yes, this man is, and is really the perfect constructor of fictions so that the form is perfect. Yeah. Uh, and here's this weird overhanging thing in the first chapter. Which is utterly imperfect. But, but it is your sort of eye. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, it, it is observing, and it isn't part of the story, and it knows it isn't. But to get back to the Arnold, I mean, do you think... I've always thought it was quite unfair, because in a way, given the story, it seems to me that kind of it, it really kind of hinges on whether what a novel is doing is literally describing an external world in which case the idea of being faithful or unfaithful of being cruel or, or, or gentle towards a character sort of makes sense or whether a novelist literally is just constructing a thing and that the construction of this object of words actually that within that the rules are kind of different to the rules of real life and I'm still, I still don't know what the answer is um, but I've always thought that Arnold was being unfair I sympathise with Arnold, and I sympathise with him more the more I read um, Flaubert's letters and Flaubert's essays, because I think Flaubert was pursuing Madame Bovary. All right, he said, Madame Bovary, c'est moi. And so, in a sense, he was pursuing himself, which... But he intends to destroy her as a small kind of person, and he has made a judgment... And he doesn't express this judgment, he shows, not tells, which makes the judgment much worse than if somebody in the text was sitting and saying, this woman is so silly she deserves not to exist. Um, And there's a moment in Madame Bovary where this tips over for me because Madame Bovary takes her lover to see her child, which is with a nursemaid, and she thinks she will look rather good in front of the lover if she picks up the child and holds it to her bosom in her arms, although she's not feeding it and doesn't mostly see it. Um, and the child dribbles onto the shoulder of Madame Bovary, who hastily hands it back to the nursemaid and says to the lover, let's go away from here. Um, and I think that is, A, very objective. You know, that you can see that that... That is what happened, if you can believe, in the time of a fiction. And B, it is totally judgmental. He has damned her, um, in my view. <laughs> she is a bad woman. Well, it's interesting you use this, the, the word damn because 
the way that I think novelists often I think that often what's being argued about in this issue of cruelty is is is, is the problem of evil that people are very upset by the existence of badness in the world and a novelists of they often use a, a Flaubert certainly used it as a get out they just say I'm just a realist I'm just describing things as they are um, and there's a way in which they're kind of saying all I'm doing is kind of mimicking a certain type of kind of evil that exists outside of me and it's not my fault if um, all I'm trying to be is accurate. Um, and do you think, I mean, because to me Madame Bovary is not evil and she's not, she seems to me ordinary and I quite like her. Is that weird? I don't like her. <laughs> um, Maybe because you're a man and I'm a woman. I mean, I feel she is inadequate more than if he had looked at a whole range of women of exactly her kind. She need have been. There are time and time again when Balzac would have created a woman who responded differently. And Flaubert just piles on the episodes of her behaving badly in rather the same way. Um, I mean, it is one of the greatest novels. I'm not arguing against it. And, and I agree that there is a mystery there because there is a mystery about the problem of evil, or even if evil exists. Yeah. I mean, is it, rela- this, is it related to the fact that actually every... I can't think of a nice character in Madame Bovary. It's not just that she is found morally wanting, but... No, everybody is every, found morally wanting. Everyone is found morally wanting. And and it, then you have to ask yourself... I'm sorry, I've been reading Nietzsche this afternoon. <laughs> you have to ask yourself where the idea of morality comes from by which you feel you have a right to judge Madame Bovary. And Nietzsche would say, the idea you have is Christian, and if Christianity isn't true, there actually isn't any morality. Things are just as they are. I- I'm sorry, I've got rather sort of obsessed about Nietzsche this <laughs> afternoon. Um, and he can go out of the conversation again now. But, um, but um, it, he is fighting Christianity at some deep level. Flaubert. Flaubert. Yeah. And um, he's fighting a Christian description of human behaviour. I mean, uh, as you, in fact I am, I think. I mean, could you say that what Flaubert is fighting is, a, is any kind of meta... Often I feel with Flaubert that he's trying to kind of... He's arguing that what he's doing <coughs> is an entirely literal description. That's a self-defence... Um, I mean, anybody else's entirely literal description would be different. I mean, that's the glory of the novel. But isn't it one of the dreams of each novelist, I think, in their um, maniacal way, that they think theirs is the literal interpretation, which to everyone else is obviously an interpretation? I don't think so. I think they think... This is a difficult... I think it's a mixture. I think you hope you're describing accurately rather than using your own feelings or, going back to my boyfriend, exerting power. You want to be telling the truth. Iris Murdoch used to say very steadily that it is requisite that people tell the truth. And we know we're writing fiction, so it isn't any sort of a truth. Um, But... And you go into somebody's world as a reader, and we haven't yet mentioned readers. Any reader is in a position to judge both the behaviour of the characters in a novel and the world of the novel, whether the world is an accurate description of the world as they know it, or 
putting it more delicately, whether you're prepared to stay in a world described by a writer who is describing a world you don't really believe in. And I believe in the world of Madame Bovary, but also I don't believe in it because there's endless other novels of the same period in which the view of human nature is not so damning. And there's Balzac, who is all over the place, <laughs> and whom, as you know, I love more, although he's yeah. much more of a mess. Well, to talk about Balzac, I mean, one of th- we've actually talked about this recently, that one of my favourite um, Balzac anecdotes, and, and I have no idea if it's true, I, I read it recently in an interview with the Iranian filmmaker um, Abbas Kiarostami, um, where he, he says that there was a, a time when um, Balzac was at one of the salons looking at the paintings, um, and there was a painting of a kind of cottage with kind of smoke coming out of the chimney in, in, a, snowy, in a snowy landscape. Um, and the painter happens to be there, and, and so Balzac, being Balzac, um, then <laughs> says to him, um, how many people live in the cottage? And, and, and the painter <laughs> says, um, I, I have absolutely no idea. And... Um, and Balzac says, well, no, I mean, how many people live in the cottage and, and what is the, uh, going to be the dowry for the daughters and what was the harvest like uh, recently? And, um, and the man says, I, this is insane. Of course, I have no idea. And then Balzac says, if you don't know what their harvest was like and you don't know that, well, how much their dowry was, you have no right to describe the smoke coming out of the chimney. I think that was one of the most... I'd, can I, you find that? I for want me? this because to be true because so I think it's one beautiful. of the most profound things it's just ever. It's beautiful. Um, and well, the reason I'm, I'm fascinated by it is because I think one of the things that um, we often argue about, I think, is what you would describe as the difference between an exclusive world and an inclusive world in fiction. Um, and I think if we were to use Flaubert and Balzac as the two poles of that, Flaubert is entirely exclusive. That, as it were, he he is not interested in the the dowry of the daughters if it is outside. The parameters. Uh, no, of the he novel. describes it, and if he doesn't, it isn't there. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Balzac would have known. He knows more things than are there mm-hmm. in the actual novel as it's described. Or the other thing I think I'm interested in is: is there a different type of novel writing, which in some ways to do with technique, where you as a reader believe that Balzac, not or whoever, believe that the novelist would be able to describe it. Um, and is, is that something that is more believable as a novel? Well, one of the things um, one of the things that came into my mind when you said that about Balzac and the cottage was something I once read about Dickens talking to a writer or a hopeful writer, and he said, "If you're describing a scene in a room." you need to sort of be in the mind of the people in the room and you need to know every bit of furniture that is around that room and you need to know, this is my favourite bit, what is outside the door and what is on the stairs out of the room down into the street and what is on the street and what is round the corner. And I have that kind of imagination. If I start writing a scene, I need to know what is round the corner even if I never describe it. I, I just need to know. And I do things like, as it were, hop into the body of one of my characters and look out of their eyes and see what they can see. And at some point, I then start... Right, I, start, I need to know what they can't see as well. So it means that the novelist needs to know more than the characters. I just need to know everything that is going on. 
and then I pick the things I think are part of the novel. Whereas I think there are other novelists who put together something extremely tight and beautiful out of things they have collected, like Flaubert, for years and years. Or Nabokov's cards, when he wrote Lolita, he collected every single bit of evidence about um, motels motels and ticked it off as he put it into his novel. And you feel everything Nabokov knew about motels is in Lolita. (laughs) Um, whereas I think there are writers who would have got into a motel and looked out of the window and said, oh, my goodness, I don't know what kind of tree that is. You know, I'd better go and find out why that tree has got that kind of things dangling from its branches, which I've never seen before. And Nabokov is a a control freak. And I'm not being rude to him. He's a very, very great writer. Flaubert is a control freak. Balzac once wrote a scene which my French translator hated so much he couldn't bear my having read it, in which a character propose, a character who is, runs a printing business, which Balzac himself did, and it failed horribly, as the one in the novel does. But the character stands on a bridge, I think it's in the evening sun, and proposes to his girlfriend... And the proposal contains the whole history of the printing industry, and not only of the printing industry, but of the paper-making industry, (laughs) right back to papyrus. (laughs) And my French translator, who had an orderly and elegant mind, said, this is absolutely ludicrous. And I felt very moved by it, because I felt this man was offering this woman what most mattered to him, the whole history (laughs) of printing and paper. Uh, And... Balzac then himself always gets in. He then got on in, into adding, there's another two paragraphs in that extraordinary and weird passage about the nature of the novel um, in Balzac's voice, and then he gets back to the proposal. And I, I don't care if it's a mess. Those two people are clearly in love, and they get married and love each other. And I don't know how he pulls it off, but um, it delights me in a way Flaubert's persecution of Madame Bovary doesn't. It's reminding me, I mean, always talking mess. There's a, we both love snooker. Um, and um, one of my favourite quotes by a snooker player is when Ronnie O'Sullivan was asked why he liked playing snooker and whether he never got bored. Um, and then he said this marvellous thing where he said, well, no, because do you not see what happens is you make this terrible mess when you break off and all the balls go everywhere and then you just tidy up. I love tidying up. <laughs> um, and... Um, and there is a way in which I think this is, this is true of novels too, that there is a way in which um, there are the novelists who like um, just leaving, uh, creating more and more mess, and then I think there are, there are, there are novelists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was completely opposite. <laughs> who like breaking things. <laughs> um, um, because this is meant to be a reading, I've, I've, uh, there's one moment that this, this is literally going to be five seconds of reading. Um, I think I'm in the control freak... Uh, side of novelists um, and there's a moment that um, I was therefore incredibly proud of so this is purely a moment of vanity of reading um, where in The Escape um, I have my character um, leaving uh, a strip club as it happens um, and then going on a walk and then one of the things that I was very conscious of was that this novel was incredibly tightly organised and also very much really only focused through the consciousness of the main character called Hafner um, and then in two paragraphs, what I enjoyed, or actually one paragraph, was that I enjoyed simply, suddenly, 
as it were, doing the Dickensian thing of, going, of, of, of describing what was outside the room. Um, so this is a reading of one paragraph. Finally, Hafner reached the hotel. He ignored the greeting of the Roken receptionist, clutching a paperback and a serrated, freshly burning plastic cup of coffee, walked into the lift and pressed the wrong button, so that when he turned as normal to the left and tried to move his key in the lock, it would not work. Finally, after three minutes, he realized his mistake. Oblivious to the scene, he had left behind the door. A man in pajamas, wielding an umbrella, a woman whimpering in the bed, a marriage teetering. <laughs> um, that's, that's, that's the paragraph. Um, and, um, that's brilliant. And I, 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 <laughs> and I definitely like the idea that, ob- oblivious to my main character, I- another novel was happening um, entirely kind of um, separate um, that we would never know about, um, but that I could have written about in a different world entirely where I had the time. That's, that's um, a sort of, it's like Iris Murdoch saying that she always wanted to start writing her novels again the moment she'd finished them in order to tell the story from the point of view of all the minor characters who had only been on the edge and hadn't really been able to. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, the man with the umbrella <laughs> is somebody who is there. Yeah. I mean, we actually kind of had a small, I'm thinking that, and you talking about Nabokov makes me kind of think this, that... Um, the, in, in a way, I, when I was writing this book, which is about a kind of old man slightly going mad um, in a crazed three days at the end of his life, um, the real central character to me was the um, his dead wife, um, a woman called Livia, who therefore is not in the novel as such because she's, she's dead before the novel's action begins, um, but in a way was both the moral and the emotional centre of the book. Um, and I remember we talked about how kind of Weirdly, therefore, she was excluded, and that made her real. Um, and I'd been thinking one of the books that I'm, uh, I've always been interested in is, is Nabokov's late novel Ardor or Ardor, which I think is a complete failure in many ways as a novel. Um, but one of the things I've always liked about it is um, the way he uses this character called Lucette, who is the sister of Ardor, um, who is in a relation. And the real plot of the novel is the relationship between Ardor and Van Veen. Um, but what you very, very minutely realise is that, in fact, Lucette has been in love with Van Veen throughout, but she has been excluded not only from their relationship but from the novel. From the story. Um, and that it's the fact that she's been excluded that makes it so moving. Um, and in some way, I think I was definitely thinking of that when I was trying to exclude the, the main person from the novel. Um, well, this, 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 I think, works brilliantly in the novel, um, particularly since Livia being called Livia carries with her the wife of Augustus Caesar, who we all remember from the series. And so she is a very powerful character, and she, and yet because she's dead, she's powerless. And I find this quite moving and frightening and complicated. And there's an extraordinary passage where Hafner refuses to talk about the war and excludes her when she's alive, if I've, if I've yeah. got it right, which I think is, is my favourite few pages of the whole novel. Because I think because for the first time... I, you're right, she is the moral centre, and yet you never get told what she thinks or what she feels. And in some way, everything he does relates to her, even though he constantly pursues other women and other girls in all directions as fast as possible. Um, 
and we don't know what she thinks about that and we don't know what she feels about that. But he can't tell her about the war. And, I mean, this is true. People can't tell people about what happened to them in wars. It's, um, it's the nature of it. But it's, it's something you do. You go along on one note or four or five inter, interconnected notes and then suddenly you drop something in. I mean, you did it all once or twice. You did it with politics in politics. Politics had no yeah. politics in. But when some appeared, they were devastating. Um, but Mar- I think it's related to this idea of trying to ruin one's own pattern. Yes. As if that makes something more real. You have to have a pattern to be able to ruin it. Yeah. And, and I think you do do that. But then if I think about, say, the children's book, I think one of the really interesting things <laughs> is almost that you do it the complete opposite and it creates, hopefully, the same effect, um, which is that... Um, you inhabit multiple kind of consciousnesses. Um, and so, it, whereas what I do is kind of limit and then dart out, um, you seem to do a very interestingly similar thing, but with a, a, a much wider remit, where by having so many different points of consciousness within your novel, um, one is constantly, almost kind of um, every page, you're moving and moving. Um, and I was wondering, partly for me, when I was reading it, I was thinking... I was amazed by how you would write it. Um, that's very interesting, really. I, um, this, I suppose this is the novel I've written with the most characters in it. I haven't counted any. There may be more, actually, in A Whistling Woman, but most of them don't appear for, for any length of time. It's certainly the novel I've written with the most main characters yeah, that's, I think, the difference. in it. And it's surprising how many people, sort of interviewers and readers, have said to me, but who's the hero? Who's the heroine? Where is the central consciousness? And I don't think before I wrote it, I'd understood just how much readers need somebody with whom to identify in a novel. And because of partly of what Iris said, I have sort of moved to feeling that in the real world identifying with one person isn't the best way of looking at the world. You should look at multiple people and multiple ways of looking. And what I do, I mean, what I've always done as a novelist is um, is enter people's skins and look out from their eyes. And so I will sit in a room with six characters in, and I've always got two or three characters whose skin neither the reader nor I is allowed to enter. And then there's all the others. And the consciousness of the narrator will actually hop mm-hmm. between three or four of the six people in the, the room, and it will never see out of the eyes of the other two who are part of what is being seen. And the rules for which characters you write from inside get made pretty early in the writing. And, and what kind of... I mean, do you think that's an instinctive... Emotional rule, or do you think that... It used to be an instinctive emotional rule. Um, It was a sort of balancing, really, of parts of the novel. Um, My first novel had a father and a daughter, and largely the consciousness was was one or the other, and all the other people were seen from the outside, but the mother occasionally got seen from the inside and had her own view of the matter. Um, In this one, I used to have to sort of stop between sections and reorganize my body and my mind 
so that I was looking out into the world from the point of view of the person whose section this was. Um, and partly because I kept being dreadfully ill during the writing of it, this was actually quite easy because I kept stopping and starting, stopping and starting and going into hospital and coming out again and stopping and starting. Um, it sort of fitted the way it was written, which was slowly. Um, it's very interesting. I, I, I don't think it can be described sort of looking out of somebody else's eyes. And your eye, does he have any body or is he just... No, I think when I have this eye in the book, I, I, it's a purely floating entity. It's a language. It's a, yeah, it's a phenomenon of language. Because um, my narrator is language. My narrator is certainly not a person. Yeah. It's just the I mean, I think I quite enjoy the confusion. I mean, I enjoy kind of pretending that in some way this must have some autobiographical relation. And sometimes it does. There's a dreadful um. moment when I thought that Hafner's son was your eye, but he isn't. No, is no, 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 no. It's a purely. Um, there was a that was a misleading. No. Oh, and maybe it was just a mistake. It's never, it's never, it's oh never a character, God. and it's never me. I remember there was a terrible. There's a moment in politics where the narrator says that he's rarely averse to a blowjob, um, and I thought this was quite witty when I was writing it in the seclusion of a room. Um, and then I did my first ever reading where I chose that passage without realising that um, that line came up. Um, and then the, 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 sh the bodily shame that overtook me as I had to read out this line and refusing to look at the audience, thinking I, I will never ever kind of be able to live again. Um, it, it very much taught me the difference between the, uh, the literary eye and the real eye. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, um, but, and talking of blowjobs. Um, yes. <laughs> I think uh, one of the, the, the things that... Um, one of the ways, I think, in which one can often tr uh, treat this problem of other minds or how, you, how diff two different people will have completely different experiences of the same thing, obviously, is sex, um, I think. And, um, and so this is your, your, your opportunity for readings. I, I, I really wanted Antonia to read one of these brilliant sex scenes from the children's book, and she refused on the grounds that that was too much what I wanted. Um, <laughs> but instead, uh, we've compromised <laughs> on, a, on, on a different passage. Um, and you, you can introduce it. No, wait a minute. I haven't yet. Oh yes. Um, yes, this is this is a scene in which a priapic novelist, who isn't H. G. Wells and isn't D. H. Lawrence, but is a novelist of that period interested in sex and believing anybody can... Well, no, he doesn't, because he's run off with somebody else's wife and he's saying, as Lawrence did, that this is a great and wonderful union. However, his behaviour is other. Um, he is about to form a relationship with my one of my central characters, who is a lady writer who writes children's stories, fairy tales, things of that nature... And um, he is taking her for a walk, thinking he will get to know her better. Is that enough of a... <laughs> um, Herbert Methley talked to Olive about sex. He sat next to her during rehearsals when neither of them was needed. He took her for walks along the rivulet past the church into the marsh. His talk was at once theoretical and fleshly. Much of it was about what women desired. 
He said that until recently it had suited men to suppose that women felt little or no desire, were pure creatures or milch cows that men treated as property. Adulterous women were beheaded in Semitic cultures, but not adulterous men. And yet, as a good student of Darwin, he believed that sexual desire was instilled in human beings, like other animals, by the needs of the species to propagate itself. Elsie Warren, trim and fine-waisted, came rapidly towards them with a basket over her arm. Did Olive suppose, Herbert Methley asked her, that such a young woman... He studied her figure very intently as she went past, smiling politely at them. Felt none of the stirrings young men felt at her age. It was very improbable. Olive himself, he said, herself, he said, drawing her hand through his arm, was both a wise woman and, like himself, a student of human nature. What did she think? I am mostly a student of inhuman nature, imaginary nature, said Olive, evading. I tell fairy tales to children. The prince always marries the princess. Or the daft young man gets the princess because of his good nature and because he is the third son. Or the prince becomes a roe deer or a swine and has to be disenchanted by the clever princess. I don't know what it has to do with what you call the needs of the species. All the tales stop off with marriage, or perhaps foretell a large number of progeny, undefined. They were going past a field with a herd of cream-coloured cows, heavy, muddy, staring cows. In a corner under an elm tree, one female cow was busily mounting another, making the movements a bull would make. Although unequipped and provoking, they both noticed a quiver of response or irritation in the strained area under the lower cow's tail. Does not that prove my point, said Herbert Methley. The poor things are deprived of the presence of a bull who would in nature be there, guarding his harem and snoring, snorting defiance at other bulls. Yet they feel a need. Olive felt a blush mounting from her bosom to her face. I hope I have not shocked you. I did not mean to shock you. I think you did, but I am not shocked, and I take your point. Scientifically, your example, look, she has got down and sauntered away, is evidence for what you say it is. Um, I was thinking, I think I'm going to fight back and I'm going to read one of my own sex scenes. Um, Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> just have one. Um, and partly also because I'm thinking it, it relates to this idea of um, trying to, for both the novelist. Um, and then the characters trying to kind of um, understand something which is um, other. Um, so very, very far towards the end of my novel, um, when this character has almost been forgotten, um, there's a character called Zinka, who is the kind of main love object. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, of this poor guy called Hafner. Um, and, and I think, and, and so basically suddenly, right at the end, when um, he's in meditative mood, um, the narrator abandons him for one kind of section um, and describes what she's doing at that time, which, and um, it's kind of late at night. In the darkening sky, the reticulate constellations were nets hauling in Hafner. He had left Frau Tummel behind. Zinka, it is true, troubled Hafner's thoughts, but gently, tenderly, she still eluded him. He could only think of her obscured, taking off her T-shirt, an arm making shadows of her face. So, for one last time, I want to go in search of Zinka. She was in her apartment in front of her television, in the living room decorated with prints of haystacks, a cathedral facade disintegrating in the twilight. She sat there until the light went, then went to sleep. And then that night, as usual, Nico came home and made for Zinka's bed, where Zinka was doing her best to form the letter S. Her bed was in fact a sofa. It disguised itself as a bed in the darkness of the night. Its covering was ribbed polyester, dyed grey. Nico tried to follow the breathing, which made her chest ascend and descend, cleanly silhouetted in a sheet. He tried to synchronise his breathing to hers. In the same way, in the dark mornings before school when he was eight and it was snowing, he had crept into bed beside his mother and tried to match his breathing to hers. Someone once had told him that men's respiration was quicker than women's, which was why women lived longer, so he tried to calm his breathing down. Very slowly... Nico then began to move. He felt his usual combination of the erotic and the uncomfortably sad. As he laboured inside Zinka, as she lay on her stomach, her legs cramped in angles which he could not alter, which would not let him extend himself in the way which Nico might have liked, he tried to tell himself that although it was not the life of desire he had imagined, perhaps it was enough. Perhaps Nico was happy, but he could not. No, Long after he had finished with Zinka, who was pretending to pretend to be asleep, Nico lay awake, watching the shapes of the books melt and blur against the wall in the dark, in dawn's twilight. Yes, long after his bleated, blurted defeat as he reared over her, stabbed in the back by his soft orgasm. While Zinka lay there, imagining all the other lives she could be living, and then they fell asleep. Um... I don't know where this talk of sex gets us, actually. Um, I'm, I'm thinking it's... Often, I think, for the novelist, it's partly about, I think, that the kind of phenomenon that sex is both this kind of... Um, or can be both an absolute union and can be also a moment where two people are thinking diametrically opposite things and that that, at that point, seems to, I think, a novelist poignantly sad. Um, and it's also, I think, about... Um, and one of the things I want to ask you about is, is kind of how you describe a feeling. Um, and that one of the oddnesses of trying to describe sex, I think, is trying to be true to the fact that it's both physical and mental at the same time. Um, and it seems to me incredibly difficult to work out how to kind of construct sentences that are true to both at once without either seeming horrifyingly 
pornographic is the wrong word, but porn, uh, horrifyingly kind of direct, and at the same time um, true to the kind of to the mental side of things. And I think this is why the cows actually, are, I think, do the same thing. That there's a kind of way in which you use the cows to do one thing, the bodily, and then the conversation. Um, essentially, you've described a sex scene. It's just that actually there's no sex in it. No, well, I cheated because I wouldn't read the sex scene which followed. Um, and I, one of the things I believe is that the, the language is adequate. The English language is adequate if you just sit about finding the word that will do both the thinking and the feeling. I mean, the second thing I think is if if you're writing about sex, you could be writing to arouse the reader or you could be writing to understand what's going on. And the really good sex scenes do both, let us face it. Except that (laughs) I think, I I mean, I oddly think that what what you and I are quite good at is embarrassment. Uh, I mean, one of the things I loved about politics was, was I've never read a novel about the embarrassment of sex that was so successful at describing the embarrassment of it in so many different ways. And, <laughs> and this is immensely liberating to, to people who have, on the whole, read descriptions of extremely successful and, as it were, violently explosive and very happy and tender sex and have never read about embarrassment, pure and simple. Um, and there's a whole vocabulary which is lying around waiting to be exploited in describing embarrassment, as long as you, as long as you continue to pursue accuracy, um, the, 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 the 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 sad sex scene which follows my cows, um, um, the the woman finds herself suddenly remembering the penis of her husband in this adulterous thing and making a comparison, and this really worries her and causes her to be distracted from taking any pleasure in the whole episode which I think she is only engaging in anyway for some sort of complicated power politics. But um, it's... it's, I suppose that's what I'm... It's not an easy topic to talk about, but I think you have to be more accurate um, because there's an enormous number of exploitative, evocative words you can fiddle with in such subjects. I I think certainly that you're definitely aware when you're trying to write a sex scene... even more than with any... Well, actually, maybe it's the same, that the reader is such an unknown quantity. Um, and I'm always kind of interested... That it's, it's always sex scenes that often make people very much... Every, it's very interesting, I think, what people think they're an expert on. Um, and everyone believes they're an expert on sex, that their sexual experience is the norm, and that anything that differs from that is in some way... Um, bad description oh, weird, um, yes. um, but I'm also kind of interested in this I'm not sure that a good sex this idea that it should be arousing you see to me I think that well it could be simply embarrassing because if I it's mean, just embarrassing then it's not going to be all laughable um, then uh, I mean Kundra one of my favourite novelists you know I, one of the titles I love most of his is laughable loves um, because the idea of the laughable and the idea of love is meant to be kind of you're not meant to um, think that but then I'm just thinking there's a lovely line in Tristram Shandy where Mr. Shandy says, there is no passion so serious as lust. Um, and this is true, that, and, and, and because it's so serious, it's therefore so laughable. Um, and that, so I, I, I kind of, I, I don't know if there's any sex scene I've written that would be actually arousing. I can't really, um, I, I hope not. Um, 
but um but on the other hand i'm also there's an, and i think i just mentioned this to you the other day that one of my favorite moments in nicholson baker's book you and i is where he's talking about updike and saying that um he has to admit that he has never successfully masturbated to a passage of Updike. Um, <laughs> um, but then in brackets, he wonderfully says, I have, however, success, had, had two or three very successful orgasms to Iris Murdoch. Um, oh, I remember and, that, yes. And, um, and <laughs> the idea of anyone masturbating with um, an Iris... I, this this amazed me. Um, and, uh, you see, the sex scene I remember in Iris Murdoch is a total failure. Which one is it? It's in an unofficial rose. And the, the man says very politely, I'm terribly sorry, I'm afraid this isn't going to work. <laughs> and, and, and I felt at that moment completely present in this scene. Um, I'm, I'm thinking we should probably hand this over give a, to give up other people before we um, say something terrible. Um. Uh, I'll come round with the mic if, if whoever wants to ask a question, if, if you could wait... Thank you, so that everyone can hear. Thank you. Um, you've both referred to Nabokov. Um, I would just like to, with reference to Still Life and Miss Herbert, wonder if you could say a few words on synesthesia and translation. I mean, more specifically, um, Nabokov as a control freak, perhaps because he was a, a synesthete and a translator as well? Uh, That's your question. <laughs> could, could everyone hear that, by the way? Um, well, I suppose the thing about synesthesia is it must—it's it, it, like an intensely subjective. You know, if you believe that sounds and colours are kind of linked in that way, um, it must massively reinforce some kind of idea that um, your vision of reality is kind of more precise or something than other people's. Um, whether it's related to his kind of translation, because I mean, I suppose what I think about Nabokov in translation is that he really shifted, and it's, I mean, famously, um, he became this, uh, I don't, uh, he translated Pushkin and he translated other poems as well from Russian, where he became an obsessive of, the, of what he called the literal translation. Um, and he decided that it was absolutely impossible to ever, tra the, the, the crucial thing was accurate rendering of the content of, say, a poem. Um, and that to try and do the rhyme as well, to try and represent the formal properties was impossible. Um, but actually, if you, it's what's interesting if you look at him is that when he first started translating, he did a, a wonderful translation into Russian of Alice in Wonderland, for instance, um, when he was very young. And what's interesting is that he completely... It's nothing to do with his normal ideas, so, that because, um, so he will completely do... Um, the pun so that Carol's portmanteau words, he makes up his own portmanteau words in Russian um, and in fact changes her name um, because Anna is a kind of strange name in, um, in uh, Alice's strange name so he, he, he calls her Anna um, which a later Nabokov would absolutely um, go against. So I think a lot of Nabokov's translation theory seems to me to be very much influenced by his exile that it was the point when he sort of partly switched language and decided that he was going to have to write in English. And this was partly because he thought he'd lost his audience because the Russian emigre um, culture was, was too disparate. Um, that the sadness, I think, in his ideas of translation is, 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 it seems to be much more biographical in that sense, that it's to do with sort of historical accident. That I kind of believe that if Nabokov had stayed in Russia in a, in a happy culture, if he'd also translated, in my head, he would have translated much more freely than he did by the time he was kind of feeling incredibly solitary and in America. Um, 
this hasn't answered your question because it hasn't. Well, I, I, so I, I, I suppose the, the sinister. I, I suppose what I do is I find the Borkers ideas of translation very moving because I think they're related to that, um, and that there is a kind of manicness to it, um, and there is a way in which he's often trying to say that um, his view is the right one and everyone else is wrong. Um, but it seems to me, I, I, I suppose I find it quite likable because I think it's from incredibly emotional roots and from quite vulnerable roots. Um, and that sometimes the cliche of Nabokov is of the control freaky kind of guy who um, believes that their reality is the only one. And I suppose I think it's more that I think he felt very threatened, actually. Um, that doesn't answer anyway. Um, yes, it does. It answers <laughs> okay. it extremely. Don't you think it, it answers it? <laughs> Not I quite tried. the synesthesia bit, but I don't think I've got anything to add. I think it did answer it. <laughs> okay. Uh, given that you, you Antonia, in, in particular, spoke at the beginning of just the, the sheer length of time writing a novel takes, I'm interested in the extent to which on, say, one end of the, the scale, you feel, and a question for both of you, you feel that maybe by the time you emerge from the end of your novel, having done this in your study, that maybe the world has sort of passed you by or passed the book by, or on the other hand, has the world sort of obediently come to heal during the, the, the time that it's taken you to write this? Um, but, uh, how do I answer that question? It's interesting in terms of the children's book, which is a historical novel anyway, and sort of runs from 1895 to 1919. It's interesting how many of the questions I've had from journalists and readers are about, is this an image of our time? And I think they're mostly talking about J.K. Rowling. You know, is this... A, is our time a time which is peculiarly obsessed with children's books? And I don't think when I started the novel it particularly was. I mean, in, in my previous long novel, I actually invented a character who wrote a children's story which was much, much more successful than Tolkien and became very rich. And that was before Rowling started writing at all. And you do find that you start on a subject... And the subject then turns up in the world and starts unrolling itself. I mean, only part of it in certain directions. Um, I think also I've always... I never wanted to write a First World War novel, and I hit the First World War because I have so little historical sense that when I started working out 1895, I didn't realise that... Um, everybody who was children then would end up in the First World War, and I had to do the kind of double-take they had to do when they found themselves in the trenches. And that was quite interesting, because I thought I was actually telling it differently from war novels which start and end with the premise of a war. Um, so the novel fits itself to the world, I think, and to the world of writing. And, of course, the... I mean, this novel took me seven years because it wasn't really possible to shut myself up with it till I'd finished it. Things kept getting at me. Um, 
it would be nice to get back to writing again now. The sort of time when a novel comes out is very, very frightening because you become unreal, because you're not working. You're just talking. <laughs> and this is quite frightening. It's, it's, it's not the thing you were meant to be doing. <laughs> um, but I do have an idea for the next one, and which shows you that I don't really live in the real world because I haven't managed to make a connection. I'm just thinking that um, the only small thing I want to add to that is when I, I my first novel, Politics, um, and literally I think in about the week it came out, I suddenly realised that about 18 details in it were now obsolete because my novel had this kind of effect of essentially anything I described went bust um, <laughs> just before it had come out. So I remember that um, a huge amount was made in my novel of, I think, um, when Boots had this pure beauty idea that they started this chain of pure beauty, which lasted about a year. I thought it was going to last forever. So... <laughs> I included it as a brilliant marker of um, realism. Um, and by the time the book had come out, no one understood what this was. Um, and similarly, I think even a, a cinema that um, I'd grown up with in Edgware, um, that managed to go bust as well just after the book came out. Um, so, um, so in that case, uh, the, the book was entirely obsolete um, on publication. Uh. I once had a terrible argument with Kazuo Ishiguro at 4 a.m., about whether you put in details of contemporary life, and he said he had take, he said he knew every description of every knife and fork that the butler would have put out in the remains of the day, and he had taken all the descriptions out because he was translated into thirty languages, and most of the people wouldn't understand these knives and forks. And I was sitting there saying, but these knives and forks are the essential of the novel. They have to be in. The things have to be in novels. And we were perfectly happy. We argued it out and <laughs> didn't get enough sleep. But there are two lines on that. I mean, you could have left out pure beauty. No, but I think actually that the obsolete is a really interesting... Um, it's, it's both a deliberate category of all novels, I think, often, that, kind of, that you almost include kind of dead objects that are now already past their sell-by date. Um, and also all novels will become outdated. I think that, I mean, in a similar way, I, I, I think recently actually there was some interview with William Boyd where he said the same thing, where he said, I, you know, I would never want to refer to Big Brother. Um, and there's a kind of snobisma to this where you just think this is kind of, um, it's a, partly because you can't avoid the contemporary. There will be something that he's written in a novel which will be um, obsolete in five years' time, ten years' time. Um, and also because I sort of think that's actually often what gives a novel its energy is that um, detail. Um, yeah. I mean, so in, in Ulysses, Things, I mean, yes. I'm thinking one of the bits I love in Ulysses is where there's an advertising jingle um, for Plumtree's potted meat. Um, what is a home without Plumtree's potted meat? Incomplete. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and it was a real brand of potted meat. And that kind of brand name, I think, is really important, actually, that there's a, a when just that, it, who, you know, it, it's completely irrelevant that now there's no such thing as Plumtree's potted meat. Um, but without it, I think the novel would be... Um, less interesting in some way. Um, I was just wondering, while you were reading Nietzsche this afternoon, I was reading uh, Frank Commode's Sense of an Ending, and he had an argument in that that the novelist is almost slaughtering, or the narrator is slaughtering its characters or in pursuit of its characters. And what you said, Adam, about what you want an escape was a sense of the character escaping. Um, do you feel as novelists that the end is a sort of a murder in that sense. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very good question. 
I don't know about Adam, and it'll be interesting to hear his answer, but I hate getting to the end. And I hate writing the end. And the sort of... In one of David Lodger's comic novels, he makes the joke about Jane Austen saying, you know, you can see that the end is approaching because there's only another six pages. And I'm trying to remember who what it was said at a much more... I think it was George Eliot said that the end is always more unreal than the rest of the book. Um, and she used to weep and weep. I mean, she wept and wept copiously over killing Maggie Tulliver. And I've never, to use a word I don't use, identified enough with a character to weep over their fate. But I don't like the end of the story because no story has an end although a life may and it's artificial and you know what you're writing at the end is more artificial than what you've been writing in the beginning and the middle and you feel very worried about it and I go into a dreadful panic and my family doesn't understand why I'm so miserable when I've got to the end because I I ought to be pleased but um and whether you kill people off or whether you throw them into the future, you've lost your relationship to them. Um, in a way, I mean, this is a sort of hazardous guess. I think it's probably easier people that die in a book, because that is an end, than people that have that terrible kind of dreadful ending where they're staring into the future, which is something I really hate. Um, and when I was a student, it was very fashionable to say that that was a much better ending than wrapping it all up. But actually, it's just another form of ending. You know, it's formally just another version of the same thing. And I used to reread and reread um, Rosamund Lehman's Dusty Answer. And the, the woman goes through all the men in the book and is left all by herself in a cafe in Cambridge at the end, staring into the future. And the same thing happens with sons and lovers. You know, everything in the book has been... I can't bear that. I could never write one of those. It makes me so unhappy, this unsatisfied feeling as a reader, that I I wouldn't do it. And I like those old Victorian novels that give you these very artificial potted biographies of everybody and tell you what happened to all the characters after the end of the book um, but simply because it's emotionally less stressful I don't know if that answers the question but or what you feel um, I'm so, I think one of my, my favourite ending is, um, D- is I think it's Women in Love the end of D.H. Of, of D. Lawrence's Women in Love where the last line is simply I don't believe that she answered and it's the middle of an argument and it just, it, it just finishes on this completely kind of um, it's in the middle of the argument and I've always thought that was kind of the greatest type of ending is the one where um, it just carries on. Um, and, I mean, there's a lovely thing that Conrad said about Henry James, where he said, you, you know, you leave his novels um, with the sense of life carrying, of continuing or carrying on. Um, and, yeah, so I think that the problem of the ending is you're always avoiding trying to make it a proper ending, you know, um, or I am. Um, and novels I, are different from plays because tragedies have to have an ending. And and the theatre requires the end of Hamlet or the end of Macbeth, and the novel really doesn't yeah. require it. I mean, I think is it because there's something about a novel where the sort of 
there's always a tension between the movement of the plot and the movement of the kind of action of the novel um, and the movement of the sort of the thematic movement of it. I mean, there's a, there's a thing that... Um, and so what you, I, I suppose I'm always trying to get is resolution thematically, which might not be the same thing as resolution plotly. That's a terrible word. It's a um, good word. And, um, I mean, there's a thing that I've always really loved where Henry James is writing to someone who as always, doesn't understand him. And he says, there is a huge difference between what you understand as a, as a story and what I would call a subject. Um, and, he's kind of, and, and, and it's true that if you look at Henry James, the reason why Conrad is right and why there is always this sense of that an entire life is going to kind of carry on um, is that all James ever describes is the resolution of the subject, the, of the kind of whatever his particular thematic interest is. Mm. Um, that comes to some kind of conclusion. So I don't know, like The Wings of the Dove, which is my favourite novels of his, um, it ends, but everything has come incredibly neatly shut in terms of what James's subject is, which is about kind of basically lying. It's about kind of um, how a lie can be both morally good and then destroy your own life. Um, but Merton and Kate are left at the end of this novel um, trying to sort of sort out what's going to happen. And that's also got a great last line where, where I think she says, we will never be again as we were. And that's the last line. Um, so that it's this kind of sense of total finality in one sense that something has been irretrievably lost in their relationship, but they're still together um, and they're still going to have to carry on in some way. Um, I'm rambling. But that, that, so that no. in, in some way, I think that that's the kind of crucial thing for me is that the kind of... Um, it's not a murder if you're writing well. <laughs> that's good. It might be a murder if you're writing absolutely brilliantly. <laughs> I mean, there are murders. I, I, I will think of one. It's a terribly good ending in Adam Folds' novel, which I've just finished reading. The last line is a total shock, and, and because he's a poet, it's a perfect one-word ending. And somebody over there has read it. Um, um, my uh, thought is um, something I've often wondered about. In, in most novels, um, the author will describe, or the, the I, if you like, or the whoever's narrating, w will say what people are thinking, as well as what they're doing. They'll describe people's thoughts, which actually is quite interesting, because it puts, you, it puts, puts the reader in a privileged position that they're not used to. In, in life, because we don't know what people are thinking, we just hear what they say, and we may not even know what we're thinking in, in such simple terms. Um, so, um, what, what's the, what do you think of that, of the te technique of describing thoughts, internal thoughts, as well as uh, the narrative action? Um. Well, it's I mean, it's true that we never know what people are thinking. On the other hand, I would say most of one's life is spent trying to work out what people are thinking. Um, so in that sense, it's actually quite a natural thing to be doing, that in any conversation, you're never just listening to the words that someone says. There's both the kind of, there's some kind of, it must be an instinctual kind of way in which you're interpreting people by their, their movements and so something that's kind of subliminal. Um, but, uh, but I think that in, uh, you know, there's a constant movement between you know how you think um, and it seems to me actually that what's really interesting about novels is that there's always this 
it's almost a neurosis, I think, about um, what's universal. So the novelist, like the, anyone, is always thinking that they're universal, that they must be, that they're kind of... Um, uh, it would be a kind of total tragedy if it turned out that everything they had... They, their thought process turned out to be kind of um, incre- entirely singular. Um, so there's a huge amount of inference that goes on that you think, well, it, you know, th- you're always thinking, well, this is what I would think in this situation um, in real life. And I think, I suppose, the same thing happens in a novel that... Um, I mean, Kundra has a lovely thing where he says every character is an experimental self. Um, so it's not you, but it's, an ima- it's a you that you could imagine in those situations occurring like that. Um, and I suppose um, that's how it is. But it's true that I think often when you're describing someone's internal thoughts, I suppose that's the most intrusive you can get as a novelist. That that's the moment, I think, ethically where it's most kind of electric, you know, there's a way, because that is the most private thing, I suppose, possible. Um, And it's therefore also, I think, often where readers therefore can disagree, you know, that kind of, a reader is constantly matching their own thought process um, against the thought process that you describe. Um, I don't know, but I know, I mean, it's, 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 it's the most difficult, but I also think that... It seems to me also that it's the, it's the area where there's probably most improvement. You know, there's sort of there's a kind of there's a literature of visual description that say someone like Nabokov is a genius at, and I sort of feel that that's actually kind of easier than it probably looks. Um, mm. Whereas description of what's internal has to be as kind of concrete and particular as possible, and that's the real um, that's proper imagination. It seems to me. Um, But I suppose I think it's actually more natural than you're saying. I think it's kind of um, it's it, it'll be, it, it's happening all the time. Um, this 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 inference. Um, so therefore, the novelist's kind of way of doing it isn't so strange. Maybe. No, I, I think that's that's quite right. And I mean, if if you take a novel like Jane Eyre, Jane Eyre is making inferences about what Rochester is thinking. And he's making inferences about what she is thinking. And Charlotte Bronte, having invented both of them, knows what both of them are thinking to a greater degree, though only by going through the same kind of process. And in a way, it's very artificial to assume that all we know is what people say. You know, you um, Adam is quite right. If you look at somebody while they're talking to you, you very quickly think, why is he saying that? Where is he coming from? What does he know? What does he not know? Uh, and you can do that in, you know, the twinkle of an eye between sentences in a dialogue. Um, and when you were speaking, I was thinking of the contrast between the theatre and the novel. And the novel is a relationship between a writer and a reader. And the reader is doing this kind of guessing game all by him or herself, very intently. And he will do it through all the dialogue the novelist offers him. He will try and see what is going on in the head of the person who's producing the dialogue. Um, And, as Adam said, I think he will also judge the novelist's account of the thought process behind the dialogue. And all of this is a kind of relationship to language and to what language can say and what it can't. And I am with George Eliot. I think language can say an enormous amount. I I am not one of these people like sort of the French Nouveau Roman people who want to restrict 
what the language of the novel can say. I think if it can say it, it can say it. And you as a reader can then say, he's got it wrong, that person didn't think that thing. You can actually say that. I, I mean, I know novels in which people think things that I, as a human being and reader, know they didn't really think. The thing is in um, mauvaise foi. It's, it's false. You can, you can recognize that as well as a reader, and that can be quite interesting because the same writer can then go back to being quite perfectly good in the next paragraph. Um, but if you're Hamlet or Macbeth or Prospero, every single thing you think has to be said on the stage. And the audience and the audience doesn't have its own single response because it becomes welded if the play is any good. The whole audience will react as one if the play is any good. And when Hamlet says to be or not to be, that is the question. He's describing his internal processes. And I think in a quite different way from a novel every single person in the audience is thinking, oh, God, yes, that is the case, to be or not to be, that is the question. And everybody in the audience is also looking at Hamlet and saying, has he got this right? But they're not doing this extra thing you can do in the novel of sort of slightly detached judgment about whether he's got it right. I mean, whether Shakespeare has got it right. You And... I, I find that endlessly interesting. And I think the English novel, actually, is peculiar because of Shakespeare. Because I think no other literature that I know of has a drama that is in many ways so close to what novelists later came to do, as we have. I, I think Shakespeare is a kind of miracle of um, going inside people and outside people. I adore Racine and I love Aeschylus, but they don't do that thing that Shakespeare does. And I think, paradoxically, he made it possible for the novel to do it, but he doesn't do it himself. Does that make sense? Um, I'm thinking, is there... I mean, the two things I think when I think about how you try and do thoughts are speed... Well, partly the speed at which a thought happens. I mean, there's a lovely thing, I think, that often happens in 19th century novels. There's a moment in Balzac where... He'll describe for about three pages what someone thought, and then we'll say, "Of course, this took the matter of an instant." And um, uh, <laughs> and it's true because uh, actually, one, one can have incredibly complicated, um, if one were to try and describe it in language, um, thought processes which literally take a millisecond. Um, and that the nineteenth-century novel really, tr- you know, kind of has a rather sweet kind of ability to both render the thought and then admit that actually, this, you know, it's just taking you twenty minutes to read a page, which in fact took half a second. Um, and then there's the issue of whether you think in language at all. I mean, this is the basic kind of... Um, there's a lovely thing, I think, that... Um, I think it's Eliot says about um, Joyce, where he basically says, of course, in reality, we do not think in words. Um, that this is a brilliant attempt to render in language something that is not verbal. Um, and so... And it's, it's always amazed me, because where you, you, know, that you get in Ulysses this kind of extraordinary rendition of what it's like to think. And then it seems to be equally extraordinary to actually then rather offhandly say, but of course, actually, we don't think like that, but it's a brilliant sort of mimicry using language of something that's not linguistic. And that is also a huge problem, I think, for the novelist. That um There's a problem for the novelist because the novelist has chosen their profession because they do think in words. I mean, I often think I think things out that other people might not think out. 
And you mean the, verbally? Yes, I mean, there are various biological processes or peeling a carrot. And I start thinking of exactly the right words to describe peeling a carrot. And this is sort of pure pleasure. There must be people, but I don't know them, who peel <laughs> carrots without putting it into words at all, um, um, let alone sex. Um, <laughs> but... Um, and so I think we're both odd and not odd because I think half the time what novelists do is reveal what people don't know they're thinking but are thinking. And the other half of the time, they're hypersensitive and hyperlinguistic yeah. and slightly envious of people with direct biological experience that people don't bother to put into words but I'm not with the people who say that things can't be put into words I think almost everything can if you're good enough at words um, and I don't know that we can think without language going backtracking completely I mean well, can I, could you imagine a great painting about thought oh yes most of Poussin yeah um I don't think... I mean, Picasso, oddly enough, is always thinking. He's thinking about geometry, if not about anything else. Yeah. Um, um, Claude Lorraine, perhaps not. But I don't think actually any painter painted without thinking about geometry. But I mean, but the depiction of thought... And I'm just chemistry. Thinking, and like, there's a way in which the sort of... I mean, Michael Fried, um, the, the art critic has this idea of absorption that kind of that that's how thought is depicted in a painting is through the idea of that you depict someone absorbed in what they're doing and yeah but that's manipulative um, um i think he's being very sentimental hmm. i agree i'm not <laughs> but, um, um, this is this is sort of going too far in a, yeah. in a direction that we're let's not let's have going. another question Should we take <laughs> one one more question please There are no more questions. You haven't had many. Oh, sorry. Here we go. Thanks. Um, so, question for uh, Antonia. What you said about ways of writing sounds very much like the ways of teaching or possibly of learning that you write about in um, Babel Tower. And I wondered if that's a book about writing, in fact, or a book about ways of living. Um, Babel Tower is a book about language. The plan of my quartet of novels was that the first and the last should be like a George Eliot novel, which sort of unite all the layers of living and thinking and symbolising. I'm talking very fast. Um, and then it was going to break up, so that the second one, which was called Still Life, was going to be the one that was purely descriptive without metaphor of biological processes. You, you have to remember I was very young when I formed this arrogant plan, um, and I fell over because I couldn't write without metaphor. But Babel Tower was written by somebody who had discovered that the professional languages of things like sociology and psychology and politics had become so self-contained and so dominant that the common speech which any novelist re relies on for writing, and at that point the novel does come in, 
was was at least in question, I think, in the 1970s. People began to talk in very small jargons to each other, and that included pop music and all sorts of other small jargons. And Babel Tower is about all these people trying to sort out a way of talking to each other as it all got smaller. And it wasn't really about the novel, though the shape of the whole quartet is about the novel, because my idea was to take apart the world in the two central novels, Still Life and Babel Tower, and then put it together in A Whistling Woman. And this didn't quite happen because I also thought, by the time I wrote A Whistling Woman, that the world had got even more shredded. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, and. And if anybody wants a warning, do not project a quartet of novels when you are a very young woman, <laughs> according to a theme you think at the mo- at, at the time when you're a very young woman, you know what you're doing because you don't. And <laughs> history will get at you and <laughs> linguistic structures will get at you. And I was trying to record. I thought if I went along and recorded, I could make a novel form that would do the recording. Um, and it sort of works, I do think, but it, goodness, it took a lot of wrenching. Um, and and the two trials in the centre of Babel Tower are about um, a private and public obscenity trials, a divorce trial and a trial of a book for being unacceptable. And they run through the various languages, legalistic and every other, you use to describe human behavior. Um, And I did mean to bring it together again slightly more triumphantly than I did because the world didn't do it. But um, but, I think it's not primarily about the novel, it's primarily about the world. But the novel is part of the world. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.